Hello and welcome back to another edition of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. This is episode 8 and we are chatting with Bianca Bosker. She is the author of Cork Dork, which is a New York Times bestseller. And she basically goes into the whole world of being a sommelier. She actually quits her job and immerses herself in the world of being a sommelier. It's a fascinating book. It goes into a lot more than just being a sommelier. It goes into blind tastings, a lot of the chemicals that are are in wine, the big wines versus natural wines. There's a lot of conversation that she that she has in this book. I highly recommend it. And as a matter of fact, at the end of this episode, if you remember, we will put out a secret word and you'll get your very own copy of her book, Cork Dork. So one of the first questions I actually ask her is what current projects she's up to, because I know she was on a another podcast recently as well. So I'm asking her what she's up to currently. I'm working on projects both about wine and further afield from it. But I also write for The Atlantic magazine, and so I'm doing a story for them about mass extinction, which is always an uplifting topic. And then also working on a new book project, so staying very busy. I have been contributing to a great podcast myself. It's uh, Prince Street Live. I've been doing a lot about food and wine for them. I've been doing um, their wine club series. basically involves getting together with interesting people from the world of wine and discussing everything from godforsaken grapes to why you should be drinking sparkling wine every day of the week, not just for anniversaries. I mean, as you know, talking about wine is a, is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing is you could literally do, you could do a pile of topics. like, And that's like some of the people I talk to, I've had like winemakers on and I've had, then I've had master psalms and, but everyone's, every, every conversation is different that we talk about a variety of things, right? It just happens to flow whatever whatever way. Like I've got some ideas of what, you know, questions I wanted to hit you with, but it's wherever it goes because there's so much to talk about. There's so many different areas. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of people have their own paths into wine. And so there's so many different things that can resonate with people. And that's what they bring out in it. I've read the book, first off. I, I think it's wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you for reading it. I appreciate it. No, and and I've always liked the kind of ethnography style, kind of like immersing yourself in the culture and, you know, then writing about it kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I think it's, uh, you know, it's fun to sort of live vicariously through the writer. And I think that's what great nonfiction does. A guy in New York went to one of the max security prisons, had wanted, basically wanted to do an interview and they said no, and then he said, okay, well, I'll just get a job here then. <laughs> and he just got a job yeah. there for two years and then wrote about it. It's wild. I've heard about that book. I haven't read it yet, but I was just so intrigued by the premise. Have you read it? I have read it, yeah. It was a few years ago. I believe it's called New Jack. You kind of go in how you kind of got into wine at, at the start of the book. How the idea of doing a book and how the idea of kind of immersing yourself came about well, it's funny. I think my wine epiphany, unlike most people's wine epiphany, did not involve me drinking wine, it involved me watching other people drinking wine. 
At that point, I was not a wine connoisseur. Really couldn't tell you much about the wines that I drank back then. <laughs> you know, I think that um, I sort of had an idea that there was a difference between wine from a bottle and a box, but that was as far as it got. I didn't know exactly what that difference was. And not knowing didn't keep me up at night until I discovered this world of cork dork. And a cork dork isn't just a book title. It's, you know, the restaurant industry's nickname for the most passionate, obsessive, and knowledgeable wine lovers in the industry. So my epiphany really happened when I was out to dinner one night and the sommelier uh, mentioned that he was preparing for the best sommelier in the world competition. And I thought that sounded ridiculous. I'd heard of competitive eating things, but competitive drinking, I don't know. You know, it sounded sort of like the least fun anyone had ever had with wine. I also, though, was sort of intrigued. And so I started looking into this. And before I knew it, I got hooked on binge-watching YouTube videos of this best sommelier in the world competition, which is basically the Westminster Dog Show with booze. I assume nice. that also exists in Canada. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> Yeah, I was really, you know, I think that as a journalist, because at the time I was working as a tech editor at the Huffington Post, you know, I was really someone who was obsessed with obsession. And no one does mania like wine lovers. I mean, look at you, right? You love it so much, you're doing a podcast on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was really intrigued by the way that these psalms had turned wine, which I always thought of as like a Friday night pleasure into something approaching sheer god-awful pain, like licking rocks to train their palates, divorcing spouses to spend more time studying, voice coaches, memory coaches, lessons of all kinds. I wanted to know why. Like, what was the big deal about wine? Why do people spend all this time and energy and money on something that at the end of the day turns into pee? Right. I mean, let's yeah. be honest. It's yeah. like you destroy wine when you enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and it then became a really personal fixation as well to try and figure out, you know, how was it that they could detect these stories and nuances from smells where I smelled a glass of wine and it just smelled like wine. And so I really got fixated on what was I missing? Could I do what they did? So I quit my job. <laughs> and so it was a very rash and sudden, I would say, kind of plunge that I took into this world. And and it was very different, I think, from the typical wine epiphany that involves, you know, usually an expensive bottle in a very beautiful part of the world. And I think that it was fitting in some ways, because the journey that I had through the wine world certainly was not um, glamorous. Well, it's, it's, like you said, especially, especially starting out and in, in trying to get your feet wet and get yourself get yourself into the culture and into the industry right i mean that's you certainly work had to work your way up the ladder that's for sure absolutely i mean i was what sommeliers call a civilian you know they i had no business being in their blind tasting groups working the restaurant floor with them i mean all the things that i really wanted to do and yeah when i quit my job you know i was the executive tech editor i thought hey you know i job with executive in the title. This might be sort of a big deal. No, not at all. You know, I had these grand aspirations that I would start in a two Michelin star to work my way up to a three Michelin star restaurant from there, which was totally delusional. And in fact, I had to start over at the very bottom, as you alluded, as a cellar rat, which is basically the lowest of the low. And it was 
appropriate. I think, you know, at the time it was certainly frustrating, but in retrospect, you know, I, it became clear to me that I really wanted to pull back the curtain on parts of the wine world that we don't hear about, you know, to go beyond the fairy tale and the romance that we hear so much about with wine and really get into the sort of messy reality behind it. And so there was something appropriate about, I think, having to start in the a, a position that was deeply unglamorous and, and honestly unbeknownst to, I think, most uh, drinkers that go out to restaurants. I don't think, you know, we know about waiters, we know about chefs, but cellar rat doesn't really, it's not appetizing either, you know, not the, the, the best sounding job description. <laughs> you, you look at some psalms like like i i just uh interviewed with christy norman uh who's from in, in la and she always talks about you know there's the front of the house and then there's all the back of the house where literally she's dragging you know 40 pound boxes of wine and all the unglamorous side where you're ca uh, inventorizing and categorizing all these wines and and just wrecking your back and hauling all these boxes of wine around where it's the whole other side of it where you've you've got to create wine lists and all the non-fun stuff, you know what I mean? Right. I think that there is, I mean, as I went through, so my goal in this journey is to ultimately work as a sommelier, to work the floor, to be in a restaurant, but I had to, you know, train before then. And when I did finally spend time doing apprenticeships in restaurants uh, on my way to, you know, taking the Court of Masters Sommelier Certified Sommelier exam, it became clear to me of how much this front of the house job of sommelier really is similar to kind of a theatrical performance. And I think about, you know, if you're an actor, right? I mean, as the audience, we really see the final finished product. We don't see what happens behind the stage, you know, which in the sommelier's case is lugging, you know, extremely heavy boxes of wine up and down ladders going into the dankest darkest corners of the restaurant you know ruining your back your feet your knees you name it but you know the sommelier really comes out into the floor what i think a lot of us also don't recognize is the way that these are not just cork pullers sommeliers are storytellers they construct narratives experiences memories through a few kind of volatile aromatic molecules in a glass of wine. I mean, I think the best of them, when they go out on the floor each night, they're not just taking care of the wine. They're taking care of the emotions and needs of the people sitting in the seats. Um, and in some cases, uh, that can lead to us being scrutinized as diners much more than we realize. Uh, I was very surprised. I write about this. In Cork Dork, um, when I did a stage or a kind of trail shadow at a two Michelin star restaurant in New York that uh, basically, you know, they try to Google every guest before they arrive. So they know approximately what their budget is, what their pet peeves are. They also keep meticulous records on their guests. So if you throw a temper tantrum, you could be uh, an HWC, which stands for Handle with Care, mm. or SOE, meaning Sense of Entitlement. But again, I think that this really, this close scrutiny of diner by the staff at a restaurant is really designed to elevate a meal from 
just an ingestion of calories into an experience, into something special. And I think that's, you know, a big part of why these restaurants are the important cult- cultural institutions that they are. You you do go into a few different, like you said, pulling back the curtain aspects of of um, of like you said of, of what a sommelier really is looking uh, looking for when he when he's handling his guests and and taking care of his guests. But did you find that a few people thought you were uh, giving out too much information? You know what I mean, like pulling back too much of the curtain. Very fortunate and grateful that the people in Cork Door that were my friends and mentors are still my friends and mentors and. Yeah, they were so grateful with, I mean, generous with their knowledge, with their time, their energy, their expertise, and I'm so grateful for that. There were, you know, I think that Cork Dork doesn't stick to the typical wine world script. Yeah. And which is what I makes it, which is what makes it great at the same time because you're, it, 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 depending on who your reader is, you know what I mean. You're you're you've hit a lot of different. Uh, areas within your book so it appeals to a lot of different people yeah that and that was a goal for me I mean, when I first started the book or I should say when I first had a sort of draft of the book I shared it with some very close friends some of whom knew a great deal about wine and some of whom knew nothing about wine and it was really important to me that in each case they learned something new that it pulled them in and so I appreciate you saying that it was a, it was a real goal of mine to ensure but you know I think that in general, the reaction that I've experienced has been that, you know, the people that are, I think, the, the best, most talented cork dorks want drinkers that are curious about wine, that feel confident, that feel empowered, that want to ask questions and engage. And so I think that cork dork has, at least, you know, from what I've heard from people that have very kindly written in, and anytime I hear from a reader, it just makes my day. They have said that it gives them this new confidence. I, I think that people in the wine industry appreciate that, appreciate there's more drinkers that want to ask more questions, that want to engage with the sommelier, that want to drink adventurously. I think that's exciting. There's so many different people that love wine, be it be it the people who want the $8 bottle or people who want the $80 bottle. So there's it runs the it runs the the whole range of people who at the end of the day if they like wine be it eight dollars or eighty dollars you know there's still people who are who are, they're wine lovers regardless you know what I mean absolutely I think that I I think to me you know the wine world for reasons I'm not entirely sure why you know it feels intimidating I think that you know there's so many different sort of rules that have been put into place. And so for me, it was, I think, very, the conclusion that I came to in the course of my journey was that to start with a really healthy, informed relationship with wine, you don't need to begin by memorizing regions or point scores or, you know, producer names. I think it really starts with learning to savor these forgotten senses of taste and smell. Uh, you know, I think the wine world for a long time has told people what to taste instead of teaching them how to taste. And you're right. I mean, wine has the potential to be this universal pleasure, whether you're in a, you know, you want to spend $8 on a bottle or $800 on a bottle. And yet I think too often it doesn't feel that way to people. And I think part of it is, again, we haven't 
really learned to tune into these ignored senses. Um, and if you want to get more, not only out of a glass of wine, but really anything that you experience in a sensory way, I would suggest that you start by building your sense memory. So we have this idea that we're really terrible smellers that, you know, human stink at sniffing. And in fact, we're better than a lot of animals like rats or dogs long considered to have great noses, um, at least when it comes to certain odors. And so if you feel like you're not getting a lot out of a glass of wine, maybe not you in particular, maybe your listeners, I know that you are yourself a cork dork, but you know, I would say that you gotta, you're never going to smell raspberry in a glass of wine if you can't smell raspberry and raspberry. And you know, start like pick up a piece of fruit, smell it, try and describe what that smell smells like. You know, I had a master perfumer who was one mentor who said that I should describe the smell of everything that I sniff over the course of the day from shampoo in the morning to mouthwash at night. And so that's really building up this library of odors that we can recognize in other places. And then it's getting in touch with our basic tastes. I mean, I think we implicitly think we know what sweet or sour tastes like, but it's harder when it comes to wine, when every glass looks the same. You don't have the benefit of, you know, the cue of seeing that something is a sour lemon or a sweet cupcake. So, you know, it's getting a sense for how does acid make your tongue tingle? How does it make you drool? How does alcohol kind of leave a burning sensation in your throat? I mean, it's really these sensations that I think are that getting in touch with what they really feel like mastering that for ourselves is so critical. You know, people talk about how our taste in wine is very subjective. And I think that's true. But I think it begins with having the tools to understand what you like. And that begins with really embracing the senses. I, I totally I couldn't agree more because after talking with Rajat and after reading his his first book, and he talks about think like thinking about thinking about what you're smelling and, and actually thinking about what's in front of you. I think you mentioned in your book as well about actually once you kind of start thinking about smelling and think like actually processing it, oh, this is what I just smelled. Or like you said, we wake up in the morning and you smell in your, you smell in your shampoo or, but also thinking about, I am now, you know what I mean? Like I'm now smelling this and putting a bit of a marker in your head because I just, the last few days, started smelling more things that because I was thinking about it more you, mm -hmm. you know what I mean absolutely absolutely and I think that you know Plato and Aristotle sort of started this myth that smell and taste don't matter that these are the base animalistic senses that they are sort of corrupting pathways to vice and gluttony and all these things and I think we the result is that we've overlooked a huge amount of information and nuance that exists around us in the form of smells. You know, it's it's not only information, but it's beauty. I mean, you know, when I go for, I live in New York City, and when I go for a walk in the summertime, I mean, I'm literally running around in different directions, kind of catching different smells that have come alive in the summertime. And, you know, we have this idea that pleasure, hedonism have to be these faraway escapes and we take a big plane ride and a, you know, red eye flight somewhere. But I think smell to me at least is this really momentary escape into a different kind of beauty. And it's data. As well, I mean, I've become very attuned to the way the smells of the city change depending on 
you know, day to day, the week to week, the season to season, you know, the particular block that always smells like vanilla, um, the fact that it's pee and not vomit that I smell in the subway. And I think that there's, you know, we only have one life to live. We have a very limited time on this planet. And so to me, at least, I want to feel like I have embraced all of it fully to the greatest extent I can. Yeah, and that's, I, I, yeah, again, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and that's, like you said, like, it's beyond when when it rains and you go outside and, you know, you smell the you smell the grass and, like you said, you smell the sidewalk. and But to go beyond that and to just to experience all of it. Absolutely. And I would add for that a special word, which is petrichor, which is the smell of the earth after the rain. I love that word. I love that there's a specific term for that. But, you know, I'm sure you've, you've experienced it. And that also goes to the fact that part of, you know, smell is very connected to language. And so think about that next time. You know, being able to really put a word on this aroma of what the sidewalk smells like after the rain or, you know, the lawn after a big storm. I just, I find that really beautiful. My favorite word when, so I'm a big Pinot Noir fan. The association for me with what I'm sure a lot of people is that the fall with leaves and earth and, you know, you're walking through a forest and you've the mushrooms and all those kind of senses that you get and for me the word I always think of is rustic that's always the word that Hmm. seems to come in my head when I think about Pinot Noir and think about to me everything about fall and everything about that wine you know like I said going for going for walks and smelling earth and and the forest floor all that kind of the the usual terms but the one the one I always seem to use is rustic Mm -hmm. absolutely well and I think that you know what you find is that by, you know, over time, you know, we develop these different kind of tells or associations for very particular styles and types of wine. So for me personally, the other one that comes to me is the way that I always recognize a Chenin Blanc uh, in a blind tasting is I smell something that reminds me of a wet sheep holding a pineapple. Like that is the image that comes to mind for me. And I think that, again, the re- the way that that happens, it's not magic. It's not having some sort of super bloodhound ability that you're born with. Any of us can train our senses. Any of us can get better. But again, it begins with a little bit of effort and a little bit of just being able to say, I smell pineapple, you know, and knowing that you can recognize that and building bit by bit as you then recognize that wet sheep holding a pineapple. <laughs> Some ways in particular have a stereotype also of being men, by and large, um, which they've earned for a reason. But I was actually surprised by how much that's changing. You know, I think that the sommeliers I met were much younger than I expected. I think that people are coming to the profession at a younger age than ever before. And there's also more women than ever before, which is not to say that there aren't problems. You know, I think that it's definitely an industry that still, as we're seeing in the news, struggles with sexism. And it's both, I think, the restaurants, the restaurateurs, the people that manage these places, but it is also the guests. I mean, I think that as diners, you know, we can't absolve ourselves of the biases, expectations, um, and sexism that we sometimes bring to the table. I certainly experienced it when I was working before, um, and I think it's important to be aware of. Definitely made me more 
aware of it, you know, as something to be cognizant of um, as we're eating out and patronizing restaurants. Restaurants operate on very narrow margins, by and large. I mean, these are places, um, they're not companies. Um, they also are places that don't always have an HR department, right? And I think that there are too many cases, at least that I've heard of, where the people that are in the position to actually change something are the same people that are responsible for the inappropriate behavior. I think it's important that those stories are now being told. I think that, you know, diners have become more aware and responsible about where their food comes from, the, you know, livelihood of the animals that they're eating at their meal. But I think that we have to be sure that we're paying, you know, at least as much as much attention, at least as much energy in making sure the people that are bringing us those meals, that are making those meals, are also living good lives, that, you know, that they're in an equitable workplace, that they're free from discrimination. And I think that these stories about the livelihood of the people that make our meals what they are haven't always been told or acknowledged. Our chat about Morgan, what a great mentor to have. Oh, absolutely. I think Morgan has so much passion and was so generous with his knowledge and his experience. You know, I think that we would all be so lucky to have Morgan as our mentors. And in some ways, I think, you know, through Cork York, people can experience the richness of his experience and his knowledge and the lessons he has to impart. But I think that to me, he's also an example of someone who brings a very healthily interdisciplinary mindset to wine. I mean, I think as we sort of talked about in the beginning, I think that wine, part of its appeal is it's so varied. It's so interdisciplinary. I mean, some people find passion for it because they love history. Some people because they love science. Some people because they just love hedonism. I felt that I was really lucky to spend time with Morgan because he was able to really bring all of those differences together. Like he's a total kind of renaissance man. Watching shows like Psalm and watching like this uncorked one, you really feel like you kind of get to know someone like Morgan. And then after reading your book, you, you feel like you really get to know uh, the picture of the, of the man. You know what I mean? I guess the timeline was for him in the uncorked series, I guess, that was about a year or two before you'd met him, I guess, at that point? Actually, they, I believe they were filming the series while I was doing some of my reporting training for the book. I almost wanted to go back and see whether you were in, in there somewhere in one of the tasting groups or something. Then uh... There's a brief cameo. If you, look, if you don't blink at the right <laughs> moment, man you'll see me <laughs> that's funny i was i was wondering i was gonna like look watch back at it or or because it's on youtube i was gonna go back and say and look and see oh yeah there she is you know funny you mentioned hedonism because there's a hedonism wines in london very famous it yeah, is worth I, I mean every cork dork has to make a pilgrimage and to Barry brothers as well yeah it's it's on my list of among all the other harry potter stops that we have to make i'll we'll have to make that one too it's incredible. I mean, the history and also sellers, and they have I mean, one of the wines I write about in the book is Chateau de Cam, which is basically like drinking sunshine. It is the closest thing to an orgasm in a bottle. And it is, and there's an entire display, almost a shrine to this wine. Um, so make sure you go and see that one. 
that's uh yeah it's it'll be an experience for sure speaking of epiphanies that'll be uh that'll be a moment walking in there oh yeah it's on and every everyone's list the current palette of the north american very fruit forward wine they want that big hitting malbecs the malbecs and the, all the all the big hitting kind of stuff it's it's kind of inter it's interesting what what the north american palette is is about right now you know what i mean I think there's many North American palettes. I do think that certainly there's a huge demand and love for what some ladies not super kindly refer to as cougar juice, yeah. um, which can be, you know, those really big, uh, juicy, jammy reds, the yeah. you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. But I think that, you know, the wine world also goes through trends the same way that the fashion industry does. And so within this sort of hipster group of sommeliers, um, especially in cities like New York and L.A. and London and Paris, I mean, there's always a sort of uh, it wine of the moment. Among those circles, like we've seen Riesling have a day, Grower Champagne, Chenin Blanc. And then, of course, there's been a really growing movement for and taste for natural wines, yeah. um, which are in some ways the polar opposite of the cougar juices. You know, these are you know sort of known for being, but not always. You know, I think that the sort of stereotypes that they're a little funky. They've got some, you know, maybe something that you might smell in the course of your everyday job. You know, <laughs> some of those unusual notes of something a little weird, maybe foul in them. But, you know, honestly, there's also natural wines that just totally defy that stereotype, that are elegant, that are interesting, you know, that are kind of more mainstream in their tastes. But I think that, you know, there's an interesting thing happening where, you know, I think the sort of, uh, the big influence of the critic, and most notably Robert Parker, who really championed those bigger, juicier wines, is waning. And I think in the result, you're seeing sommeliers, sort of, you know, maybe online influencers, you know, all these other places that people can get their wine recommendations coming in to take their place. As social media kind of grows and people get influenced by a variety of different ways, and you've got, you know, you've got wine critics and wine writers who may have deals with different wineries and so they only they only push certain wineries and they, they don't necessarily promote other wineries and so then you know if they're if they're putting out information on only certain wineries and not other wineries then the the average consumer only hears about certain things so again the same thing where it all depends where people are getting their influence from absolutely and i do think though that by and large at least what i'm seeing and i'm you know, in a very atypical city, which is New York, it seems like people are becoming more adventurous with their tastes, more willing to try wines from countries they've never heard of, from grape varieties they can't yeah. pronounce. And why not? I mean, there's so many, to me, there's just something so exciting about wine that it allows us to travel through time and place without ever leaving our seats. You know, that you can, while sitting at the dinner table in your dining room at home, smell the aromas of Lebanon or Croatia or Israel or Spain. I mean, it's a, it's just a, sort of this transportative experience in a bottle. There's something 
really unique about that. For our area, you get a lot of local Okanagan, like BC wine, and people hmm. people get very, you know, kind of not brainwashed, but you know, they really want to support local, and you, but then they don't become adventurous that way because they think that they're they're supporting their local economy and they're supporting what well, is great wine, but there's so much else out there. Thank you, by the way, for doing this. Obviously. Oh my pleasure thank you so much for having me and thanks for your interest in the work it really means a lot to me it was fascinating so it was a fascinating read and because you covered so many areas in the in you know so many different areas of the wine world it was it was quite um quite in depth so the only other question i had was something i asked a lot of people was about about wine cellars and what if you currently have anything in your wine cellar that's quite interesting or something that you've been holding on to for a while or Absolutely. You know, it's funny in New York and being somewhat of a addict for instant gratification. I, I don't, I can't say that I boast a very deep seller. I, I tend to, you know, I don't have a lot of places to put things and I tend to be very curious to try them as soon as I get them. But there are a couple of wines that I'm sort of squirreling away that I'm very excited to try. One is a bottle by Gravner. Uh, a winemaker who makes wine not far from one of my favorite regions, which is Slovenia. Nothing better or more celebratory than opening up some bottle you've been waiting to try on a random Wednesday night. Like that is when you need it. You're already happy on birthdays and anniversaries. You're yeah. going to remember those days. But to me, there's, you know, really good wine can... I think transport us to a place where we're wondering about the world and our place in it. This is also why I don't have a lot of wine hanging around in my cellar. I find a lot of good excuses to share it with people and to make random occasions joyous and special. I couldn't agree more on that. My, uh, I tell a story about my father-in-law who there's a wine that we both absolutely love and you can only get four bottles of it. It's a local local winery you can only get four bottles of it a year and we had a we had a like a barbecue like a al fresco kind of outside on the table with the lights and a few of the our our friends or close friends were there and he he brought one of the bottles out and then we all had there was about eight of us so we all had like a little taste and then he disappears and he brings out another one like oh you know he, he basically pulled out his whole supply for the whole year he just blew it all one night kind of thing, right? So, and he'd been sitting on it for four or five years, and and uh, he, you know he, he splurged the, the whole night. He splurged, He just all of a sudden he disappears and comes back with it, right? So, um, yeah, pretty special. Makes makes those nights special. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think it brings people together, and that's what wine should do. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thank you. Well, yeah. let me know when it's up. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, guys. Before we go, the secret word for the Cork Dork book giveaway is hedonism, which Bianca mentioned a couple times in the in the podcast, in that interview. Hedonism. Email that to me, friends of the vine podcast at gmail.com, friends of the vine podcast at gmail.com, and you'll be entered to receive your very own copy of her book, Cork Dork. I'm away for a few weeks on holidays over in the UK. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get any interviews done while I'm over there, but if not, 
when I get back, I've got a couple really great interviews lined up to share with you guys. So that's it for today. Take care and have a glass for me.